This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. EM Weekly is starting right now. We need to inject ways where thinking happens because he told us the problem was thinking because too often we're just in get it done mode. We're in production mode. Welcome to episode 37 of EM Weekly. And today we're going to be interviewing David Marquet, a former Navy captain and the captain of a submarine called the Santa Fe, which he took from the bottom of the heap of submarines, if you will, and brought them to the top. No pun intended. And David wrote a great book called Turn the Ship Around, which is about how he innovated a way in the Navy to be able to do bottom-up and top-down leadership and ownership of the process. And it was really kind of a cool process for, for him to go from the Naval Academy where it's a command structure, such as like the master and commander, and I kind of talk about this in the, in the interview, to a ship that I shall intend to do this and instead of saying, may I have permission to. And it's a subtle shift a shift is large enough to make changes. So I think you might be getting a lot of, uh, of ideas out of this on how to make those shifts specifically with your organization. At least I hope so. That's the intent. So it's Christmas time and holidays, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, Solstice, whatever you celebrate during this holiday season. And I think turn the ship around would be a really great addition to anybody's library. So if you're looking for a, a gift idea, yeah, you can buy that on Amazon or whatever bookseller that you that you use. So before we get into the interview, just like to remind you guys to share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. And if you're inclined to, please leave a leave us a note. Uh, if you aren't listening to this via the EM Weekly webpage, please feel free to go over there, www.emweekly.com and take a look at what we have and some of the free resources that we have over there. And again, share that with your friends, colleagues, and loved ones. So I want everybody to have a great holiday season. We're going to be talking about leadership today, and we'll bring in a couple other um, ideas in uh, during this month. David, welcome to EM Weekly, and how are you doing today? Good. Thanks, Todd. Thanks for having me on your show. Well, sir, can you give us a quick uh, background about, about your Navy experience and how you got to the Santa Fe? Yeah, sure. So I grew up in an environment where le- the pinnacle of leadership was knowing and telling, or maybe even all-knowing and all-telling. In other words, the, you know, the captain or the leader was supposed to know all the answers and was the source of decision-making knowledge in the organization and also generally the source of making things happen. And I carried that with me and I was sort of scary good at that for a while. And uh, so the Navy promoted me and I was selected to command a submarine. Uh, But at the last minute, after 12 months of preparing for one ship, I got vectored off onto a different submarine 
And it was a different kind of submarine. And so it threw me in this really uh, uncomfortable position of not knowing every detail, not knowing every button, even though that's what I normally would have been used to. And my experience was I was forced into basically not giving orders. I made a deal with my crew. I said, look, I'm never going to give you guys an order because if I give you guys an order and you guys follow it, it might not be the right. And But there's ten, organizational tendencies still to follow the orders of the captain, and that will result in bad outcomes. So we have to break this mold, and the way to break out of it is not for me to give better orders, which is the normal approach, but simply for me to stop giving orders. But on your side, you're going to say, I intend to. You're going to not come to me with, hey, here's a problem. Here's what I want to do. Here's what I want permission to do. Not even that, but just here's what I intend to do unless you stop me. And let me explain why. So that was the transition that we made. And and in the short run, we had this amazing turnaround where we went from uh, the bottom to the top of the fleet in terms of keeping people in the Navy and morale and how the ship performed. But the really cool thing was what happened over the next 10 years. More officers got picked to be captains of their own submarine from this wardroom, from this group that I was with, than any other submarine that I know of. And that's really, I think, the power of the story, which is, when you let people make decisions, you're growing them as leaders and you're you're giving up a little bit of short-term production, perhaps, but you're building a much more resilient organization that's developing leaders and the, the, the ability to, to make decisions versus just we're getting stuff done all day long. So that's what the story is about, is exactly how we did that, what we said to each other, how we changed the language on the submarine. Now, for those of you that don't understand the Navy and, and naval traditions, if you think back to the book and the movie Master and Commander, traditionally that's that's the way ships are run. The, the captain says what it is, and that's what's going to happen, and and you salute smartly and you carry on, and right. that's the way that's the way it was. And so what what David did with his ship with his boat was really kind of turned that concept upside down. So we'll talk a little bit more about that. So in your book, a couple of things that I really find interesting, and one was that first captain that gave you the the idea or the concept of, I intend to. Tell me a little bit right. about him and, and how that worked out. So uh, one of the things I always say is that, you know, none of my great ideas were actually my great ideas. There are things that I heard and experienced from other leaders. And so on my very first submarine, uh, the first captain I had was a very traditional top-down master and commander type of submarine captain and uh, the kind that's portrayed in a hundred movies. And then he was replaced by a guy and I had an experience where as a young officer, I wanted to do something with the ship that required the captain's permission. But we were in a training, we were off the coast of, the East Coast of the United States. So this was back in the 80s. So we were we were sort of in this um, Cold War thing. Uh, and what I wanted to do would have given away the position of the ship. But because we were off the coast of the United States, it really didn't matter. It would have been a great, it was great training. And so I called the captain. I say, this is what I, you know, request permission to blah, blah, blah. And he says, why don't you just tell me what you intend to do and tell me why it's the right thing. And that was like, a breath of fresh air. And then so uh, forever after that, for my, my remaining time on the submarine, which wasn't that long, I'd be saying, okay, here's my plan. This is what I intend to do. And here's why, you know, it's the right thing. And here's why it's safe. 
And they said, okay, very well. And he w- would walk away and it was awesome. And then we go do all these awesome, cool things that normally you would have to get permission for. Mm-hmm. And I saw how it, how that lit a spark in me. And I saw how it lit a spark in the people around me because then they would come to me with ideas. Hey, hey, get the, you know, I was like Mikey, you know, have Mikey try it. You know, like <laughs> have Marque tell the cast that we're going to do this, you know, and I would formulate a plan at the beginning of the watch. And there was this sort of surge in thinking and involvement and engagement. Uh, it was like this window that opened to this bright spring, beautiful day. But then it closed again because when I transferred off the ship, I was thrown back into much more traditional command and control models. But I always carry that vision with me, hoping that someday I could be that kind of a leader. Anyway, uh, that, that, that second captain, his name was Mark Goliath, and I really owe a lot to the seed that he created in me. The Santa Fe was really your second crack at the idea of transformer leadership. You tried it on one other submarine prior, but it just didn't, didn't work out. What, what do you think the difference was between the Santa Fe and your other boat? So I tried it as the engineer. So I was in the middle of the organization. It was, it was a failing organization. It was, um, it was, you know, it was depressing. There was low morale. Performance was not very good. And I came in with a bright idea of giving the team a lot of authority. And it was a miserable failure. And there were a couple reasons. Of course, at the time, I blamed everybody else. But I think I was part of the problem, if not one of the main, the main <laughs> contributor. And later on the Santa Fe, when we did it again, as a captain, it was easier for me to control the system. And I said, like, the leader controls the structure and defines how the team interacts. And that allows the leader to release control of the details of what the team does. And as the engineer, it was much harder for me to do that than as a captain. But the second thing is, in order to give control of the team, you need to have two things in place, which are technical competence and organizational clarity. And as the engineer, I I neglected spending enough time on building the technical competence of the team. Now, most people will say, well, gee, uh, you got a team that's running a nuclear reactor. Aren't they technically competent? And the answer is like, yes, at a a basic level, they are. If you say, hey, start up the reactor, start this turbine, they know how to do that. But in terms of putting things together and sequencing and saying, okay, when do we need to start the turbine? Are we ready to start the turbine? Have we met all retests for starting the turbine? They had gaps. And so I needed a team to think at the next higher level. When I got to the Santa Fe, we did much better at that. And we didn't repeat the error. We spent a lot of time on technical competence. We spent many hours in training and in doing training and learning behaviors. Even we were just standing watch, we would be learning. We're always running these little experiments and learning. And that was one of the big differences. So A, it was my ability to control the system and B, the dedication to learning and the time spent in learning and training. So back to the Santa Fe. So you get to the Santa Fe and you talk about the other boat that you were supposed to be assigned to. You knew this thing up and down, back and forward. You could run this thing by yourself if you needed to. You get to the Santa Fe, you know nothing about it. And then you give an order and the order was technically wrong, right? You couldn't, didn't have the yeah. speed that you wanted to go to. Yeah. And, and your team in, and tried to fulfill that order and they're like, okay, maybe you knew something more about the boat than they did that you had some sort of top secret information. Is that kind of where things kind of went to where you were like, okay, this is where I need to do this. Does that give you the, the clue to that? Or tell me a little bit about that story and how that impacted you. Yeah. So like the first order I gave, I, got, I took over. So I had two weeks. I took over the submarine. 
I mean, the fundamentals of submarining were the same, but the, the minutia, the button pushing, the details were different. And I gave an order. Basically, it was like shifting into fifth gear on a car that only had four gears. But the officer repeated the order, and the error was cascading through the organization until one of the junior and junior people in the organization said, "Well, we only have, in this case, you know, uh, you know, we only have four gears, so we can't shift into fifth gear." <laughs> and this really rocked me back on my heels because in the past, whenever I'd made bad orders, it was like the way I talked to myself out of that was give better orders. But there was really, I couldn't conceive of any way of doing that in any kind of a short time frame because I only had, you know, I had two weeks to take over. And so we brainstormed with the team and I said, you know, really there's a, the only other choice is just to stop giving orders, which is what we settled on. And we made an agreement. I would stop giving orders and the team would stop asking permission. That Instead, they would tell me what they intend to do. And I still had the ability to stop them and ask questions and have conversations, which was very important because it was still pre-decisional. But unless I said no, they were going to do it versus the normal thing is to get permission. Unless you say yes, it's a stop. So in permission-based organizations, the bias and the default is stop. And in intent-based organizations, the default is go. Mm-hmm. That's really important to understand. And, and it, it kind of comes down to what, as a corpsman, uh, when I was assigned to the Marine Corps, we learned a lot about commander's intent. So it kind of comes back down to commander's intent, right? Right. So commanders, so there's two legs that this thing sits on. One is technical competence, which we talked about. And two is you could call it commander's intent, which we, we call clarity. What are we trying to achieve? If your team doesn't know what you're trying to achieve, you can't let them make decisions about it because they'll all make willy-nilly decisions. They won't be aligned. You won't get unity of effort. And But if they have understand commander's intent clearly, then, then you'll get both distributed decision-making and unity of effort. And I'm not talking about a whole bunch of wishy-washy Let's have meetings and, you know, analysis paralysis. When I say decisions by the team, I don't necessarily mean the whole team gets together and makes a decision. Like it's a decision by a member of the team. A person, you know, the engineer makes a decision. The weapons officer makes a decision. The operations officer makes a decision by a team member. And then they come forward. So we were much better. We made decisions faster and better than other organizations, which allowed us to get more work done more accurately than other submarines, which resulted in people feeling really good about their work and developing the ability to to lead, essentially. So that's where it comes back to. Now, the typical objection is, well, yeah, that's nice. Pat me on the head for calm days and when there's no crisis. But in a crisis, which is what your people deal with all the time, we go back to command and control. And I will tell you that this is where I really would like to provoke some thinking because my experience is even in a crisis, you can do it this way and it actually works even better. And we had experience, experiences uh, in the way we fought fires where, for example, in the old way, we would direct someone to take a fire hose to a location. And in the new way, we would just provide information and the teams would figure out what they needed to do because they understand the clarity of getting the fire out. That was, the, that was what was important. So you don't do this. You don't shift in the middle of a crisis, but if you're talking about how the team operates, the and I'm sure the best EMT teams operate basically like this. They don't wait for someone in charge to tell them, oh, I need you to set up a ladder. I need you to get the saw. I need you to start an IV. 
They're just communicating as they're doing it. I, I see this. I'm starting an IV. I'm getting the paddles out. I'm, I'm setting up a ladder. I'm getting out these, the following tools. My plan is this, this, this. And they're just stating these things. And there's this rich communication while the team is taking action. That's kind of the picture of what uh, we had on the submarine. Right. Yeah. You're absolutely correct about that. I want to talk a little bit about your unique take on discipline and, and why mm-hmm. it was this way. So, and two stories I like from the book as a junior sailor, one of the guys makes a mistake on the pier, which could have detrimentally made some, some big issues, but at the end of the day, for lack of a better term, there's no harm, no foul. And it's how mm-hmm. you handle the captain's mass. And again, for everybody who doesn't understand the Navy, Captain's mass is a non-judicial punishment to where you could get everything from reduction in, in your rank to restriction to the to the boat to you know what, whatever the captain decides at that point. So talk about that yeah. story with that junior sailor and that mistake and how you guys handled it. So this really was a tough day for me because I'd been in command less than a month. We'd done a few things and things were so there was sort of this brightening on the horizon where things you know, you could see things were starting to get better. And then I just got kicked in the teeth with this sailor who who shut a breaker. We were bringing we were connecting these big shore power cables to the submarine. So these are heavy 440 volt, 400 amp cables take about 20 guys to carry. And uh, you plug them in when you come ashore so that you can shut down the reactor. And anyway, in this process, at the end of this procedure, you're supposed to shut the breakers, obviously. And But you only can do it when things are all connected. And things were connected, but we had these tags hanging that said, don't shut the breaker until you clear this tag. The next step was to clear the tag and then shut the breaker. But the sailor got ahead of himself and without really thinking, even though the tag was there, shut the break. And this is a big, big, big no-no because it's a safe. It's defeat. You're basically intentionally defeating a safety device. So the next day, I get everybody together, and I had to invite my boss, my boss's boss, and the monitoring teams, and the safety inspectors, and every all these people from there were crammed into the wardroom for this big investigation. And at the far end of the table is the poor petty officer who's done this offense. And I kind of I'm looking down the table, and this is like this is the first big sort of screw up that I'm, you know, in charge of. <laughs> I look down at the table and I look at him. He's looking at me and uh, I say, okay, tell us what happened. We'll learn the fate of that petty officer when we come back from our quick commercial break. Emergencies happen, whether they're related to medical emergencies, threats of physical violence, weather related or other. One of the most difficult things during an emergency is to find help and quickly and efficiently communicate with all parties regardless of whether you're an administrator, law enforcement, or the end user. With Titan HST, we help distort time by creating high-tech yet simple-to-use mobile-based applications that connect you with the people who can help you. At Titan HST, we believe in the power of people. Hi, this is Todd DeVoe from EM Weekly. If your company is in the emergency management and response space, EM Weekly is a place for you to advertise. Each week, we bring in experts in emergency management, response, and leadership from around the world, and they're here to share their best practices. Our listeners are eager to learn about new products and ideas, so this is the space for you. For more information, please contact Brian at brian at emweekly.com. Welcome back from that quick break. Thank you all for listening, and uh, we'll continue the story now. 
And I kind of, I'm looking down the table and this is like, this is the first big sort of screw up that I'm, you know, in charge of. <laughs> I look down the table and I look at him. He's looking at me and uh, I say, okay, tell us what happened. And he says, Captain, I'm not sure why I did it. Uh, the tag was there. Uh, in retrospect, it was in plain sight. I just wasn't thinking. I moved the tag aside, knowing that the next step for me was to shut the breaker, and I shut the breaker. And there was sort of this collective gasp. But what he said was incredibly valuable. He didn't say, oh, I must have fallen on the ground or I couldn't see it, or he didn't, anything like that. He took responsibility for his action, and he also gave us insight into what was screwed up. He said, I wasn't thinking. I was just in this automatic action. So I said, that's great. Thank you very much. You can leave. And there was this gasp because everyone expected me, like you said, to fine them or, or bust them, reduce them in, in, in uh, rank, give them a demotion. Uh, but my feeling was he was trying to do the right thing. And we as leaders owed it to, to the team to create an environment where they could be at their best or a way of interaction. And so we said, you know what, we need to inject ways where thinking happens because he told us the problem was thinking because too often we're just in get it done mode. We're in production mm -hmm. mode. We move from task to task to task to task without thinking. Am I in the right task even? And so we talked about that. What we came with, up with that day was a thing called deliberate action, which is when you reach out to shut a breaker or start a pump or insert an IV, you pause just before the action, you vocalize it, inserting an IV into the left arm, and then you do it. And that pause allows you to reflect for a moment, just a moment, hey, am I sure this is the right thing to do? But it also, because you're saying it out loud, allows a team member to your left and to your right to say, hands off, you know, the whatever, the, there's a problem. And so... That made a huge difference because uh, later the team was the team was inspected and, and got the highest score that the inspection team had records of for operating the ship. And the head inspector, I asked him, I said, "Well, you know, to what do you attribute this miraculous result?" And he said, "Well, you guys tried to make as many mistakes as anybody else, but the mistakes never really happened because of this pause effect, and so there just were no mistakes." And we always think, oh, if I pause, things will take so much longer. That's not the case. Like it takes just half a second here and there. But that is so much, that's a, that is a tax I'm willing to pay for the ability to reduce errors from some number to some incredibly small number. Right. That's an amazing story, actually. And I really, I do get a lot out of that one. The other one is, is that you had a sailor who, for whatever reason, the watch bill was terribly disadvantaged to him. And he was upper, what, I think it was like 36 hours, if I remember correctly from this. Yeah. And then he's just like, I'm done. I'm going to bed. And again, <laughs> uh, this is for the, for the people who are, are not in the military. Leaving your post, number one, is huge. You're going to get in trouble. Leaving your post and then leaving your ship without permission is punishable by jail. So talk about that story and how you were able to turn that into a positive. So now we're about three months into the journey and we, uh, we were stationed in Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, and we had driven to San Diego. So it's a lot of open ocean, takes about a week to get there. 
and we get to San Diego. We're going to do some extra fleet exercises in San Diego. And we pull into the pier. We tie up the ship. We put the brow across. And this guy basically says, F this, and leaves the ship without permission. <laughs> like, like you say, that's a huge deal. He's gone UA, unauthorized absence or AWOL. And so my guys wanted to arrest him. And by this point, I, I was beginning to question everything I knew about leadership, all the models and all the processes that I thought about leadership, that you got to tell people what to do. You got to tell them in a clear way. Uh, that you got, you know, all these, every, everything that, that, um, I had learned, I was starting to rethink and question. So I, I was rethinking the response to this. And I asked some questions about, uh, my, one of, one of the tools was the imaginary camera and I would pause time then we'd run time backwards. So I said, like, imagine it was uh, a day ago and I was just following the sailor around with a camera. What would I see? And they described it and there was no sleep. And I said, well, how, when did, you know, how much, when did he get sleep? Oh, it was like a day and a half ago, but you know, be tough, man up, whatever. <laughs> you have another cup of coffee. <laughs> anyway, I thought, you know, I said, well, why, you know, why is that? Why didn't he get it? Well, he's standing watch port and starboard means six on it's off, as you know, right. Versus as you got more senior in the organization, there were six on, then they had 12 off, six on, 18 off, six on, 24 off. So they were getting plenty of sleep, but the guys down at the bottom of the organization were getting hammered. And I had talked about taking care of your people, and this was not what I imagined it meant. So long story short, I said, well, where is he? Thinking he's gone off to Mexico, Right. If you really want, but no, he went on base and he got a room at the barracks on base and was sleeping. So I said, well, this is not a guy who really wants to go AWOL. He just wants some sleep. So I asked my guys, well, how about getting them? No, we should arrest them. I said, okay, well, fine. I'll get them. So as the captain, not something you want to normally do. I trudge over to the barracks, find the guy in his room. I say, look, what you did was wrong, but what we did was also wrong. We didn't treat you right. And you come back to the ship tomorrow when Liberty expires, we're going to forget it. You don't come back. We're going to hunt you down <laughs> until the end of time. And we're going right. to, you know, we're going to do, we're going to hammer you. I'm, yeah. So, you know, no better friend, no, no worse foe. So sure enough, of course, the next day shows up and everything's fine. And I realized that me talking about taking care of our people had no impact on the behavior of the organization. So I made a rule, which was the, you couldn't be in a better rotation than the people who worked for you. Your life couldn't be any better than them. And so if the people who worked for you were six on, six off, that meant you were six on and six off. And that meant your boss was six on and six off. And so what happened was everybody was reset to the level of the lowest common denominator, of, of, of the lowest sailor, rank-wise. Well, there was a lot of grumbling and um, people were just frankly pissed off about that. But I was pretty firm and I said, well, then solve your life, fix your life. Don't be a victim, you know, fix it. And right. so they very quickly figured out how to get the guys at the bottom three section and then even four sections. So pretty soon the whole ship was four section. It was very equitable, felt like a team, but it was better than most all the other submarines, which were basically in three section. And so we were giving time back. I never needed to tell the crew. I never needed to give a lecture on taking care of your people because 
Now the organization was designed where they couldn't help but take care of their people. And then they were like, oh, now I see what you mean. And so as leaders, like the lesson to me is we act our way to new thinking, not think our way to new action. And so mm-hmm. normally we say, well, take care. Like I'm going to give you a lecture on taking care of your people. I'm going to give you a lecture on uh, empowerment. I'm going to give you a lecture on collaboration. That is a waste of time. And just actually just pisses people off in my in my in my experience, right? Because because I I don't need a lecture. What I need is a tool or a vehicle or a mechanism that's actually gonna take care of our people, or it's going to empower. You know what is you know. So in other words, saying I intend to. We never said be more. Thou shalt be empowered. You know what that what does that mean? So we said, just say these words. I intend to. Okay, great. And then I six months later I feel empowered. That's how it works. So say, you know, have the watch bill be equitable. And then six months later, it feels like team. We act our way to new thinking. Those minor decisions, you know, altogether becomes a major one. But it really impacted your entire boat where your advancement rates went up. The sailors' morale was up. You, your retention, uh, reenlistment uh, went up. All of that went up based upon that idea of giving back just a little bit back to the crew and creating that atmosphere of collaboration. Is that, am am I reading that wrong? No, that's exactly right. So Google did a study and said, what's the biggest determinant of team performance? The biggest, the, the variable that has the biggest predictor on team performance and it's how the team interacts. And all the time I hear leaders say, well, I don't want to get in the weeds. Well, then you're not being a leader. Okay. You just want to float around in the clouds you have no idea what's going on. Get it, getting in the weeds, that's where the magic happens. Understanding how, what do people exactly say? So we say something like here in a workshop, one of the workshop things we do is we say, someone comes up to you and says, uh, I intend to turn left or you know, whatever. I intend to start an IV in the left arm. And you think that's the wrong thing to do. So the weeds are, what, what are the next words that come out of your mouth? That's where leadership lives. Like saying, well, we're going to build a culture where people can speak freely. That's floating in the clouds. The hard thing, because everyone, anyone can say that, and everyone does. The hard thing is, how do you bring that to life? How does that sound in a meeting? Am I behaving in a way that actually makes it easy for people to speak up and, and speak their mind and to call me out and say I'm wrong? That's where uh, the nitty gritty of leadership lives. And if you're not willing to live there, Good luck to you. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> That's brutal. I know. I mean, look, look that's not everything. You got to have good strategy and you got to have all kinds of, you got to be building, making the right product and all, you know, stuff like that. But uh, yeah. if you want to build, build a high performing team, this is where I would like a lot of people I see, we have an inordinate amount of, um, uh, of energy and time and money spent on recruiting. And then we neglect how people talk to each other. It doesn't make any sense. Right. Yeah. I mean, the leadership that I learned and I still use it today uh, was when I was in the Navy. And a couple of things that I learned specifically was one, never do, never tell somebody something that you would not do yourself. Uh, and the second thing right. is to, is like always take care of your troops first. And so much so that as a corpsman, again, I did most of my time at the Marine. So the, the boat knowledge is a little bit different for me, but 
we always had our junior Marine and sailor eat first. So E1s went first right. and, you know, the higher you were, the last you went. And sometimes you had the worst pickings of your, of the pot, but that was the way it was. Um, right. And I think that's really important for people to understand. Yeah. Leaders eat last. Yeah. My friend Simon Sinek's got a book leaders eat last. And so, uh, Leaders also speak last, so they let the team hash things out, and if they need to make a decision, they speak at the end. Because once the leader speaks, everyone kind of knows what the right answer is, and they all sort of line up in that, you know, line up there, or at least they say they're going to line up there. And so you kind of squish the uh, the conversation at that point. Yeah, let's let's talk about that for a second because yeah, you're you're right, and that's one of the things I've I've learned too is when we do roundtable, I def- and I'm in charge. I definitely go last and that's because I do want to hear the other person, but I never thought about the fact that they would just fall in line with what I said. Is that what you did in the wardroom as well? Well, yeah. So, so most meetings are run in a way that reduces variability and makes it harder for people to speak up because we talk about it and then we vote and the vote tends to be binary. Hey, we're thinking about doing a, you know, we're thinking about buying a new truck. Okay, great. Blah, 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 blah. What features do we want? Well, we want this feature. Okay, let's talk about it. Blah, blah, blah. Okay, everybody vote. Do we want that feature or not? Thumb up, thumb down. So it's binary public voting after a discussion. That tends to reduce dissent and the ability for people to talk. So the discussion is going to be handicapped because we haven't identified the quiet person who thinks differently. So what you really want to do is vote first and don't vote binary but vote in a probabilistic way. Say, so how, how enthusiastic are we about, or how important is this option on the truck? How important is this option? How important is to have an offside camera? You know, whatever it happens to be. I had some fun with the fire station recently where they were showing me their truck. Uh, you know, how important is to have, you know, uh, recharging connections or uh, for, for the air bottles or the, you know, the battery tanks. So, now people can vote. And the purpose of the voting is to expose the outlier. So we say, you know, uh, we use cards. The cards go 1, 5, 20, 50, 80, 95, 99. It's 1%, 5%, 20% from the, from the extreme, either 0, 100, and then 50. So they have the seven cards and I can slide it out. Now, what you're looking for is like everyone's putting out, you know, 95, 99, and then you got one person who puts out a 20. That's the person you want to hear from because they think or see differently than the group. And we really want to give them and listen respectfully to whatever their opinion is. Now, you may or may not, you may still include the feature, but you may change the way it's introduced in the machine or you may, maybe not. Maybe they're actually the one who's, who's got the right thinking and everyone else is wrong. The, person, the first person who said the water in Flint, Michigan is poisonous was the outlying opinion but it turned out that they were right. right. So the idea is run. And when you run your meetings, vote first, expose the outliers, then embrace the outliers, let those people talk. And because that what will happen is that'll, that'll get the quiet person who actually sees something that with the rest of us don't see it'll allow them to express their opinion. And then we're all smarter for it. Yeah, I've noticed that a lot too. Like in some of the meetings that you go to and we do the round table, anything for the good of the group and, a lot of people don't say anything. And then after the meeting's over and we're walking the hallway to get a cup of coffee, and then they start complaining about this or that or another thing. And I exactly. always wonder why people. <laughs> right. Right. Cause we didn't, 
Right. And we can blame them. And it is bad behavior. Like I, we would always say, if you don't speak up in the meeting, you don't get the, you don't have the right to complain afterwards. But there's really an obligation on the leaders to um, to structure the meeting in a way that speaking up is easy to do, because we all know there's an inhibition to speaking up if the group is going in one direction and more so if the leader is going in a direction. So our job as leaders to make it easy for people to speak up. So thank you so much for, for this insight and information. And I could talk to you all day and I know you got to run, you got something coming up here in a little bit, but I do have one last question for you. It's a tough one. So I am recommending right now your book. And matter of fact, I'm actually using your book as, as one of my uh, uh, books in my class I teach uh, on leadership. So um, I, I think it's that important. But what books do you think are great for somebody who is in emergency management who's looking to do trans- transitional leadership? Here's what I would recommend. So like, we, well, like I mentioned, uh, Leaders Eat Last by Simon Sinek, where he talks about the chemicals that are going on inside our bodies. Mindset by Carol Dweck, where she talks about having a sort of growth or learner's um, mentality to life. A book I enjoyed recently is called Black Box Thinking by Matthew Syed, S-Y-E-D. Talks about error propagation and creating organizations that are better at reducing errors than, than others. So those, that's three to get you started. Cool. Awesome. I, pre- I do appreciate that. I, one of the things, the reason why I asked this question is I think that reading is still one of the best ways to absorb uh, information and be able to find ways to implement new and, and better ideas. So that's why I asked this question to, to all my guests. Thank you so much for your time. Is there anything else that you'd like to say before you leave? I just appreciate what everybody's doing. I mean, it's a tough, tough job, but you're helping people, you're saving lives. And you're making the world a better place. That's what it's all about. So thank, thank you for that.